Welcome back to our study of 2 Kings. We are in 2 Kings chapter 8 today. We'll be looking at the first 15 verses of that chapter, and we're just going to jump right in to 2 Kings, again, beginning in chapter 8, verse 1. And here's what it says. Now, Elisha had said to the woman whose son he had restored to life, Arise and depart with your household, and sojourn wherever you can, for the Lord has called for a famine, and it will come upon the land for seven years. So the woman arose and did according to the word of the man of God. She went with her household and sojourned in the land of the Philistines seven years. And at the end of the seven years, when the woman returned from the land of the Philistines, she went to appeal to the king for her house and her land. Now the king was talking with Gehazi, the servant of the man of God, saying, Tell me all the great things that Elisha has done. And while he was telling the king how Elisha had restored the dead to life, behold, the woman whose son he had restored to life appealed to the king for her house and her land. And Gehazi said, My lord, O king, here is the woman, and here is her son whom Elisha restored to life. And when the king asked the woman, she told him, So the king appointed an official for her, saying, Restore all that was hers, together with all the produce of the fields from the day that she left the land until now. Now Let's pause right there and consider this story for just a moment. So this story uh, calls back a story from 2 Kings chapter 4, where Elisha uh, raised this woman's son to life. That's the, the background of this story because it's this woman who Elisha warns about a coming famine in Israel so that she leaves and sojourns in the land of the Philistines and then comes back uh, and has her land restored to her again uh, and there's a neat providence uh, that that happens there that we'll talk about in just a moment. But it's interesting, one of the things that um, we ought to notice more and more the more we read the Bible is how God works over and over and over again in the same kinds of situations, in in patterns really. Uh, So here, for example, think about the fact this is a woman who leaves her land due to a famine and then returns when the famine is over. That's a lot like the book of Ruth where Naomi and her husband leave Israel because of a famine and then uh, they live in Moab, right? And then uh, she comes back. Now her husband has died and her sons have died, but she comes back with her daughter-in-law Ruth uh, when the, the famine is over. Right? Uh, the seven years of famine that are mentioned here also remind us of the seven years of famine during the days of Joseph when he was in Egypt. Right? Pharaoh had the dream about the seven fat cows and the seven skinny cows, and the seven skinny cows represented the seven years of famine that were going to come. So it's significant, it's interesting, right, that these, these kinds of patterns, these kinds, kinds of events happen over and over and over. Now this woman, this Shunammite woman, Shunem was in Israel, um, and so she is an Israelite woman that Elijah has, um, again, helped before, and so he warns her about this coming famine so that she can leave and escape it, right? Um, and it says, notice, it says, uh, Elijah says to her in verse 1, the Lord has called for a famine. Now, why would that happen? Why would God 
call for a famine. Well, remember, we saw last time that the siege of Samaria, the siege of the capital city of Israel, that that was um, a result of Israel's sin, that one of the things God had warned Israel about all the way back in Deuteronomy in the law of Moses was that if they did not keep God's covenant, this kind of thing would happen. In fact, uh, something worse than the siege of Samaria would happen. Um, but the, the siege of Samaria was in line with, it was consistent with those curses that God had warned Israel that would that they would come on them if they did not keep God's law, if they were not faithful to God and to his covenant. And likely the same thing is happening here. This is another instance of God bringing upon Israel one of the things that he warned them about if they would not be faithful to him. And we know Israel's not being faithful. We know that Israel is idolatrous at this point in her history. And so they're breaking God's covenant. God is being extremely patient with them. But eventually, I believe it's in chapter 17 of 2 Kings, eventually they're going to be sent into exile because of their idolatry, which was also one of the things God warned them about in Deuteronomy 28 in those curses. But so was famine. Listen to this, Deuteronomy 28, uh, starting verse 15, God told them, he said, If you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. So that's sort of the, the lead in, right? And then you skip down to verses 23 and 24. One of the things God says will happen if they don't obey his voice, if they don't keep his commandments is this, the heavens over your head shall be bronze and the earth under you shall be iron. The Lord will make the rain of your land powder. From heaven dust shall come down on you until you are destroyed. Now, the word famine is not in there, but you know if it doesn't rain and the ground becomes hard and basically all that comes down from the sky is dust, nothing's going to grow. And if nothing grows, you're not going to have any food, right? So this is a warning uh, that famine will come upon God's people in the Old Testament if they don't obey uh, God's word. They don't keep his covenant. Now we're not told every time that this happens, we're not told this is because of their idolatry or this is a fulfillment of Deuteronomy 28. But that's what's going on. That's what we're meant to to understand from this. After all, Elijah, Elisha tells us the Lord has called for this famine. Why would he do this? Well, he told us in advance what kind of circumstance would um, cause a famine to come upon Israel. So that's what's happening here. All right. Um, so what happens? Verse two, the woman arose and did according to the word of the man of God. She went with her household and sojourned in the land of the Philistines seven years. So she leaves, goes and lives where, where the Philistines are for seven years. Then she comes back when the famine is over. And then it just so happened. These are beautiful moments in the Bible. And some of us have very experienced moments like this in our life where things come together in just the right way at just the right time. And if we have eyes to see it and understand it, we know that it's God's hand at work ordering our lives, bringing about what looks on the outside like a, what people would call a coincidence. We know is actually providence. We know it's actually God shaping and orchestrating the details of our life for our good. Notice what happens for this woman. 
verse 4, the king was talking with Gehazi, the servant of the man of God. You might remember Gehazi from an earlier story uh, in 2 Kings where Naaman the Syrian came to be healed. And uh, Gehazi, uh, you know, did something he wasn't supposed to, and he ended up in trouble and whatnot. But he, Gehazi was Elisha's servant, right? So when it says that he's the servant of the man of God, that's what it's talking about. Gehazi was Elisha's servant. And so Elisha's servant is talking to the king of Israel. And the king of Israel says, tell me all the great things that Elisha has done. So tell me what Elisha's been up to, what, what great things he's done. And verse 5 says, And while he was telling the king how Elisha had restored the dead to life, which is a pretty amazing thing, right? Behold, the woman whose son he had restored to life appealed to the king for her house and her land. So while Gehazi is telling um, the king this amazing story of how God had uh, worked through Elisha to raise this woman's son to life, lo and behold, here comes the woman and her son into the king's court, apparently, right, to appeal for the return of her land now that she's back after seven years. You could call that a coincidence, right? Some people would, but biblically we would call that providence. That's God's hand orchestrating these events. And there are other beautiful moments like this in the Bible. For example, when Ruth just so happens to end up in the field of Boaz when she goes to glean so that she and her mother-in-law will have food to eat. And she ends up marrying Boaz, right? Boaz just happens to be a kinsman redeemer for the family that uh, Ruth had previously married into before her husband had passed away. It just so happened in the book of Esther that as Haman was coming to the king's court uh, set on destroying Mordecai the Jew because he hated him so much that when Haman came in to the king's court, it just so happened that the king had recently been reminded about how Mordecai had uh, uncovered a plot uh, to kill the king, right, by some of the king's guards. And the king just happened to be thinking at that moment, how can I honor Mordecai for what he's done? He was not at all in a frame of mind to agree to Haman harming Mordecai. In fact, instead, when Haman comes in, the question posed to Haman is, what can I do? What should be done for the man whom the king delights to honor? Haman doesn't have any idea the king is thinking about Mordecai. He thinks the king is thinking about Haman himself, right? And so he comes up with this elaborate scheme, what should be done to honor the person that the king wants to honor? And then the king tells Haman, you go do that for Mordecai, right? It's a beautiful providence for Mordecai. Haman hated it, right? But it's, it's beautiful for God's people. God was at work for Mordecai's good. God was at work for Ruth's good. And God was at work for the good of this Shunammite woman uh, in orchestrating these things just perfectly. Just like the hymn says, God moves in a mysterious way. So the woman's land was restored, right? Including it says, verse 6, the king says, Restore all that was hers together with all the produce of the fields from the day that she left the land until now. That may not have been much, right? Because there was a famine. But nonetheless, she has no problem. Everything is restored to her. Now, two things I want us to notice about this story before we move on to the next story. One is the providence that we talked about, the providential timing at work. Uh, and then the, the second 
is the importance of remembering, the importance of recounting things from the past. So in this story, Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, was recounting for the king the great things that Elisha had done. And that worked in this woman's favor, right? Uh, as she came to appeal for her land. In the same way, the story we mentioned about Mordecai in the book of Esther, what was happening was the king couldn't sleep that night, and so he had somebody read to him the book of the, the you know the record of what had happened in the kingdom, and it was recounted to him what Mordecai had done to expose the plot that had threatened the king's life, and that worked for Mordecai's good. Uh, it's important for us to remember the good things that have happened in the past. And not just good things in general, but the Bible encourages us especially to remember that the, the good things that God has done in the past. For example, Psalm 77, verse 11 and 12 says, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Uh, good things come from remembering what God has done, how God has been at work. Not only in the, the deeds that are recorded for us in the Bible, right? Those are primary for sure. But also remember the things that God has done in your own life. How he's provided for you, how he's saved you, how he's directed you, opened doors for you, provided for you in, in numerous ways. Recount those things to yourself. That is a good practice and good things tend to come when we remember what God has already done. Now, that's a happy story, right? The second one, not, not quite so much, right? Verse 7 says, Now Elisha came to Damascus. Now, Damascus is in Syria, right? Uh, which is near Israel, but is not Israel. Elisha came to Damascus. Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, was sick. And when it was told him, The man of God has come here, the king said to Hazael, Take a present with you and go to meet the man of God and inquire of the Lord through him, saying, Shall I recover from this sickness? Now, this is interesting because the Syrians have been Israel's enemies. Right? In fact, just recently in chapter 7, the Syrians were the ones who had surrounded Samaria, right? besieged Samaria. Um, and so the, the Syrians and the Israelites did not get along. But perhaps the king of Syria has learned from some of the things that have happened in the past that he ought to at least listen to Elisha and through Elisha to the Lord, the God of Israel, even if he's not become, uh, in other words, this does not mean that, Eli that uh, the king has, of Syria has become like, you know, converted to the, uh, worshiping the God of Israel only, but it does seem like he has learned that this is somebody worth listening to, right? Somebody worth inquiring of, uh, this, this God through this prophet, right? Um, the God of Israel. Uh, through his prophet Elisha. So uh, maybe it's because uh, the king remembers how the Israel, his plans against Israel were thwarted because Elisha was able to reveal them to the king, uh, to the king of Israel, right, to protect them. Um, maybe it's because he remembers how Naaman, who was a Syrian, the Syrian commander of the army, uh, was healed when Elisha told him to go and wash in the river Jordan. 
Perhaps uh, it's because of how the Syrian army was blinded and led like captives when they had come to try to capture Elisha. One way or another, the king of Syria seems to have realized that um, Elisha and Elisha's God are worth consulting, worth uh, inquiring of. So Elisha's in Damascus and the king of Syria is sick and he hears that Elisha is there. And so he says, go ask God, the God of Israel, through Elisha, if I'm going to recover from this sickness or not. And he sends Hazael to take a gift to Elisha and and ask what's going to happen. Verse 9 says, So Hazael went to meet him and took a present with him, all kinds of goods of Damascus, 40 camels loads. When he came and stood before him, he said, Your son, Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, has sent me to you, saying, Shall I recover from this sickness? Now that, when he says your son, that's probably just like a a way of showing respect, right? Um, He's not actually literally his son. Uh, Verse 10 says, And Elisha said to him, Go say to him, You shall certainly recover, but the Lord has shown me that he shall certainly die. Now, this is confusing, right? This is difficult to understand, and I don't, have the solution. I don't know the answer. Let's just pause for a moment and notice what's difficult about it. Elisha seems to be saying to Hazael, go tell the king you're going to get well, but I'm telling you he's going to die. So what is happening there? And and I looked at a few things that different people said, um, trying to, to make sense of this, right? And one of the things that that someone might say uh, about this is that um, the uh, the translation here is difficult, right? The one thing that uh, you know will be pointed out if you look at a, a commentary or something is probably one of the things they'll they'll note is because um, this is one of the things that I found is that um, one way to translate this uh, says you know go tell him you're going to recover, and one way to translate it says go he's not going to recover, right? So there's, and, and the, the difference in English is big, but the difference in the original language is small, right? That's what the scholars will tell us. So it's possible, right? Or it's difficult even to know what the text says. It's difficult even to know, is Elisha saying, tell him he's going to die or tell him he's going to live, right? Um, and Translators have to pick one, right? But um, it, it, it can be difficult to know. That's one, one issue here. Another thing that, um, that someone suggested <clears throat> is um, that it's possible that Elisha is basically saying, yeah, he's going to recover from his sickness, or at least he would, but he's going to die. As we're going to see, he's going to die because Hazael is going to kill him, right? And so there could even be some ambiguity in like what Elisha is saying. It's difficult because we don't expect Elisha to say something that's not true, right? Which is what it looks like on the surface. So again, it's difficult. It has to do with translation and the text and subtleties of meaning. And, not, you know, I, I, I can't solve it or resolve it. It's, it's a bit of a puzzle, right? It's difficult to understand. But... Uh, next he says, verse 11, he fixed his gaze and stared at him until he was embarrassed and the man of God wept. And Hazael said, why does my Lord weep? 
He answered, Because I know the evil that you will do to the people of Israel. You will set on fire their fortresses, and you will kill their young men with the sword, and dash in pieces their little ones, and rip open their pregnant women. And Hazael said, What is your servant, who is but a dog, that he should do this great thing? So Elisha is weeping because he knows that Hazael is going to do horrible things to Israel. And Hazael is, says, who am I to wreak such havoc on Israel? Right? I, I, I'm just a dog. I'm just a servant. But here's what Elisha answers. This is the middle of verse 13. Elisha answered, the Lord has shown me that you are to be king over Syria. Right? You're going to do these terrible things because you are going to be king. Right? He just told uh, Hazael that the king was going to die. Who's going to be king in his place, in Ben-Hadad's place? Hazael is going to be king in Ben-Hadad's place. Right? Um, that seems to be news to Hazael because Hazael, again, Hazael just said, like, who am I? But we know, and it's been a while, so we've probably forgotten, but we know that way back in 1 Kings 19, Elijah, not Elisha, but even before Elisha, Elijah was told... By God, uh, God said to him, Go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. Now, evidently, he didn't do that. Right? But later it says, And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel Mecholah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. Now, that he did, and now Elisha seems to be the one who, I don't know if he's anointing Hazael, but he's at least telling Hazael, you are going to be king in Benadad's place. All right, that's what he says in verse 13. The Lord has shown me that you are to be king over Syria. Then verse 14 says, Then he departed from Elisha and came to his master who said to him, What did Elisha say to you? And he answered, He told me that you would certainly recover. Verse 15, but the next day he took the bedcloth and dipped it in water and spread it over his face till he died, and Hazael became king in his place. So Hazael appears to have murdered the king, right, to, kill, uh, to have killed the king uh, and then become king. What that looks like, right, and this is the story is pretty bare bones, right, but what that looks like is Hazael heard from Elisha, you're going to be king next. Because the king is going to die, the king is going to die, and you're going to be king next. And Hazael killed the king himself, so that he could become king now, right? Now, that's pretty terrible, right? Obviously, that's pretty awful. Um, but it ought not surprise us. That's the kind of thing we see in the Bible and we see in the world, right? People are fallen. And the human heart is wicked, and people do some really terrible things, right? We should not be surprised when we see such grasping for power, whether in the Bible or in the world around us right now. Right? That ought not to surprise us. We can still be grieved by it. We can still be troubled by it. We can still hate it, right? Because it's evil. It's wrong, but it shouldn't surprise us. We shouldn't think, where did that come from? We know where that came from. Right? After Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, one of the very next things that happened is one brother kills another one. We shouldn't be surprised when 
people do wicked, evil things. It should bother us. It should trouble us. It shouldn't surprise us. However, we need to remember, those of us who belong to Jesus, those of us who have turned from sin and we trusted in Christ, not that we don't sin anymore, but we, we're not walking that way anymore. We're now seeking to walk in the light of Christ. We're trusting Christ. We've been changed by Him. Uh, we have the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of us. We're new creations by His grace, not because we fixed ourselves, but because He saved us. Those of us who belong to Jesus, we are called to live a different way. Uh, we should not be surprised to see that in the world, people living with this grasping for power, but we ourselves must not live that way. And here's why. Here's what Jesus told his disciples not long before he went to the cross. It says, Jesus called them, his disciples, to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Right? We must never forget that we serve a Savior who gave his life for others, rather than taking the lives of others for himself. Right? We follow a savior. We are seeking to imitate a king who laid down his life, who came as a servant, who came to serve and has called us likewise to serve one another, to be servants, not to grasp for power so that we can lord it over others, right? But to serve and to love as he served and as he loved. God bless.